Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We're still making our way through this opening sentence. In the Greek, it's one long sentence from verses 1 through 4. But there is a lot of meat here to chew on, and so we're taking our, our, we're making our way through it slowly. And this is um, now two weeks in a row where I'm going to quote from C.S. Lewis. I don't, I, I like C.S. Lewis, and there's a lot to glean from him. I don't usually uh, refer to him so often, but I couldn't help but think of um, his trilemma. And I, as I was thinking about how to open this particular text. This is a, a famous argument, probably the most famous argument that C.S. Lewis made in Mere Christianity, which began as really a, a radio show that he, he gave to the public as, as public addresses, and, and then they turned into the book Mere Christianity. But in this, he presents an argument um, for, for God. He says, Roman, uh, actually, Roman Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft calls Lewis's trilemma the most important argument in Christian apologetics. Uh, U.S. President Ronald Reagan used the argument in reply to a liberal Methodist minister who believed that Jesus, who didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. So I use the word minister lightly there, um, or loosely. But his quote, and you may recall this, is, uh, I'll, just, I'll just read it in full. It's, it's, it's not too long, but he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, speaking of Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So since the son's incarnation, since his entrance into human flesh, there has been a tendency to view him as nothing more than human. He might have been a talented speaker in his lifetime, in his ministry. He was a gifted leader. But that's all he was. Right? He, it was his followers who ended up divinizing him, his followers who exalted him to a, to a god, uh, to a deity, you know, deified him. And, and so they had their false account of his resurrection. They had their false claims of his statements. That's, that's the argument. So C.S. Lewis simply reflected upon what Jesus said about himself to make his case. And he, he says there... Uh, I don't accept his claim. This is the, the statement that he's refuting. I don't accept his claim to be God. So C.S. Lewis reflects upon those claims, right? Jesus said he always existed, that he had the authority to forgive sin, 
and that he would return to judge the world at the end of time. And he says a great moral teacher doesn't make those claims. Well, it's only reasonable to include, conclude from these statements that Jesus was either a lunatic, he was crazy, or he was a liar, or he was truly Lord. Now, some have argued, and I think it's right to point out, that there should really be added a fourth option, or making it a tetralemma, uh, pointing out that Jesus' claims could be legend. His followers could be misquoting him, right, or, or misrepresenting what he actually claimed about himself. Jesus didn't really claim to be divine or God. That's just what the New Testament says he, he said. So granting that, Lewis' point remains valid. You must worship or reject entirely the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus, as he's presented in Scripture, doesn't give the option of simply using him as a, as a helpful moral guide. There's no middle path available. You either accept it or you reject it. And so I've been arguing as we're making our way through this opening of Hebrews that the author is elevating Christ in the view of his audience so that their departure from Christ, their departure back to a Judaic church and state uh, away from Christ would become more difficult or unthinkable. And so a robust Christology is an anchor for the soul. The more we understand about the greatness of our Savior, the more satisfied we are in him. And so how that applies to us today is that everyone faces this ultimate dilemma of either accepting or rejecting Jesus based upon eyewitness testimony. We can read the testimony of Scripture. We can either accept it or reject it. And so if Jesus is divine, as the New Testament affirms, then we must submit to him. And so let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage before we read it. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise to speak to us through your word. That every time we open it, we can expect to hear from you. Lord, that does assume as well that your spirit is dwelling within us, enabling us to receive it rightly and opening our eyes and giving us ears to hear and softening our hearts, Lord. So we ask that you would do that work that only you can do, that you would prepare us to hear. And that as we sit and listen and, and learn, Lord, you would be at work to bring yourself glory and to equip us and encourage us, to convict us, and to comfort us by your gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, read with me Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This is God's holy word. So we've pointed out a few things already in this, in, uh, this opening about the identity of the Son. One is that he is the heir of all things. We considered him as the agent of creation. 
through whom all things were created. And then the sun radiates God's glory. We talked about that last week, that the sun radiates God's glory. So this morning, we're going to look at the next description, which is the central phase of this opening sentence, that the same sun who radiates God's glory also represents God's nature. The sun represents God's nature. That's our point, our only point this morning. So once we, we once again in this passage, we, we meet a, a, a word that is unique to the New Testament, a hapax legomena. It's the only time you find it uh, in the New Testament. Last week, we, we saw a word like that, which was radiance. Radiance was, only occurs here in Hebrews 1.3. Uh, and then now we're going to see this phrase that's translated exact imprint. That's one word in the Greek, literally character. It occurs twice in the Septuagint. In the first instance, it's referring to a scar or a scab. It's actually found in Leviticus chapter 13. You say, man, this is interesting. Where is he going with this? Leviticus 13, 28. It's, a, it's the, tran- the Greek translation of the Hebrew word serevet. It's found twice in that passage. Uh, the other time in reference to a boil or inflamed skin. So if there was, you know, this is in the passage where you're, the priests are to determine whether someone is leprous. And so they examine the, the wounds. They examine the sores that are left. And, and there's a character mark that's left on the skin. If, that, if that's the case, then it's not leprous. It's just a scar or a scab or a, a leftover mark from either a burn or from, um, you know, some, some wound that was received. It's not leprous. Now, obviously, the author here in Hebrews is not speaking of the son as the scab of God. Uh, that's, that's not his point. It has to do with the mark that he represents, right? He is, he is in some ways a reflection or a, a representative, a representation of the invisible spirit of God. The other instance is found in the apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees 4.10, which is translated as the Greek way of life. So in the context, it's referring to a corrupt arrangement between uh, the king Antiochus Epiphanes and the high priest Jason. Uh, This would have uh, been a time where the king appoints Jason. They make an arrangement, right, to where the king appoints Jason as the high priest, and then in exchange, Jason encouraged the people to acclimate themselves into a Greek way of living. And that, that phrase, way of life or way of living, is the word in Greek, character. And in other words, they were to accept a Greek persona. They were to take on themselves this identity of the Greeks. And the early church fathers used the word in similar ways. Clement spoke of God forming man in the impress, the impress of his own image. That phrase impress or stamp, engraving, this is the same idea. Ignatius uses it as an illustration of the stamp that is placed upon man, like an image that's on a coin. Uh, anytime they're talking about coins, the impress image that's on it would use this same word, character. So we're either stamped by God or we're stamped by the world, according to Ignatius. Um, And he uses the term in his salutation to Trallians, or to the Trallians, referring to the apostolic fashion um, of his salutation. So he says, I'm writing to you in the fashion of the apostles. 
Um, and that word fashion, again, is the same word character. So finally, the, the last reference in the early church fathers is Shepherd of, of Hermas, where um, a reference is given to women who were most beautiful in form. And that form word there is character. So there's this ex, it's a reference here to external beauty. What's interesting, though, it's pretty rare throughout um, this, obviously, the New Testament only occurs once. It's quite rare in the Septuagint. And then it's pretty rare in the early church fathers, but you do have quite a few references, over 50 from Philo, um, the first century Jewish philosopher who was a contemporary of Jesus. He died in A.D. 50. He, he uses the word so often and in various ways, but you know, he uses it as a record or a reproduction of text. He uses it to refer to an image of a city that is impressed upon a wax tablet. Um, it's used as, our, uh, he says, our imagination imprints upon outward senses its own character. So our imagination imprints uh, the, our character upon our senses or takes, upon, you know, takes, takes in things, the outward world, uh, in a certain unique way. Uh, fourthly, man is created in the image and likeness of God, not regarding the characters of his physical body. Again, all of these are translating the Greek word character, um, but regarding his mind. And then, and then just one more example, Adam represented certain characteristics of the nature of both the world and God. He speaks of how Adam, in, in his humanity, both has an image, a reflection of God, the characteristics of, of God, but he also has the characteristics of the world. Not in any perfect degree either way, but in, in some sense is what Philo argues. And so when the church began to carefully define her Christology, this other word comes into play, hypostasis, and this author here combines these two phrases, character and hypostasis, to refer to the exact imprint of his nature, of God's nature. This word, by the uh, you know, during the debate about Christology in the third and fourth century, was translated as person. Now, this can get a, a little confusing, so I'm just gonna gonna point it out and, and we're going to move through it, but there's, there's much to consider um, about this word. The King James Version translate the, translates the phrase, the express image of his person, that Jesus is the express image of God's person. But during the first and second centuries, the term seems specifically to describe the nature of a thing or the, the essence or the reality, the being, the substance. Maybe essence isn't the right word because that can get into some confusion as well. Uh, that's the word that, that you know, created the divide in the church, what, whether, uh, whether Christ is homoousius, the same substance as the Father, or homoousius, whether he's of like substance with the Father. So that's the word essence. But this is similar in terms of, of its use. It had to do with the, the substance or the being or the reality of the thing. So the epistle to Diognetus written in the second century speaks of the substance of foreign gods as idols made of stone, wood, uh, bronze, silver. So the, the substance of those idols is the metal or the pr product, whatever they're made of, is their substance. It has to do with a, the true nature of the thing. 
So this is what informs our understanding when we get to the Westminster Shorter Catechism that speaks of the, you know, gets into the Trinitarian debate where all three persons of the Godhead are the same in substance. William Googe notes that the Greek fathers called substance what the Latin fathers called person. That's, that's where it can get confusing. John Calvin agreed that hypostasis should be interpreted as person and that in it, it is threefold unlike the singular essence or usia of God, as I mentioned earlier. So how does Hebrews use it? Again, I think it's using it in this sense of substance. I, I, would, uh, I would agree that it's, its reference here is to the reality or the nature of the thing. And he'll use it a few more times in, in Hebrews. It comes up again in Hebrews 3.14, but it's there translated as confidence. Uses it in Hebrews 11.1, 1, translated as assurance. So faith is portrayed as confidently resting in spiritual realities. Um, look at Hebrews 11.1 1 for me, with me. It says, now faith is the assurance, that's the word, assurance there is hypostasis. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith is grounded in the substance of our hope. And so in this sense, back in Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the revelation of what God is really like. That's the point. That the Son is the revelation of what God is really like. The Son does not physically reveal God who's invisible, Colossians 1.15, he's an invisible spirit, but he perfectly represents the character of God. As Paul writes in Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So just as a, a stamp is pressed into a soft wax, the, the stamp is distinct from the imprint but the imprint corresponds precisely to whatever was stamped into it. Right? In this case, the stamp is the, is the very substance of God that corresponds perfectly to the Son. So let me just summarize this and really what we've been talking about for the last few weeks in this Trinitarian orthodoxy. There is both consubstantiality as well as distinction between the Father and the Son. There is, there is parallels there is corresponding realities between them, and there is distinction. Much like John writes in, in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's distinction, and there's identity, right? There's, there's identical um, correspondence. And so while we, we have to admit that there is a level of mystery here, right? we admit that this Mystery, it's difficult to define with simple language. This, this is a complicated message. But we must likewise preserve a view of God that upholds this three in oneness. This idea that there are three persons in one shared essence, even one will that is shared in their, uh, in between the three persons of the Godhead. The Orthodox understanding of God maintains that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal, co-equal, 
and consubstantial. So let me just define those briefly. Co-eternal, meaning that no person of the Godhead existed apart from the others. That they are co-equal. There was no hierarchy involving superiority or subordination. And then they are consubstantial. They share one essence. Now, when you're speaking of the incarnate son, there is a difference, right? In his humanity, there is submission. There is, uh, there is a, an, a hierarchy, if you will, un, in, his, in Christ's humanity. But according to his divine nature, there is no superiority or subordination. And that's what we mean by co-eternal, co-equal, consubstantial. They share in that one essence. Now, it's, it's proper to have these terms and, and to understand them because they safeguard us against, against heretical views. One being Sibelius or modalism. You can find this in the shack. Uh, very recent literature. It denies the distinction in the Godhead where God just sort of shifts modes. He's a, a shapeshifter. He, he becomes whatever, whatever he wants to be. That would be related to Sibelius. Now, obviously, he doesn't quite state it quite so crassly. But the idea is that he denied distinction in the Godhead. Secondly, you have Arius, who denied the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son. Uh, he wanted to elevate those distinctions to such a degree that, that there were really three different gods. Now, who doesn't love Mary Poppins? You might think of the amazingly talented Julie Andrews dancing alongside the equally competent Dick Van Dyke. And it's a lovely picture, portrayal of, of this woman who's a nanny who just loves these kids and, and, and teaches them life lessons. Did you know that P.L. Travers, the author, was so appalled by Andrews' portrayal that she left the theater weeping? As usual, the movie has was really nothing like the books. She hated the movie because it stripped Mary Poppins of her ideals, which is why a sequel was never made until almost two decades after her death, only recently, 2018. In her explanation of, of the book series, she actually quoted C.S. Lewis. She's, she claims that God gave her the concept of Mary Poppins. And she uses the quote from C.S. Lewis, there's only one creator, we merely mix the ingredients that he gives. But her concept of God was actually quite unlike that of Lewis's. Having become interested in Buddhism in her youth, she admits to writing the Mary Poppins series as essentially Zen stories. They were Zen stories. I'll give you just one quote, one example from the first book of Mary Poppins. This is Mary Poppins speaking to the children. I believe it's near the end of the first book as she's getting ready to leave. She says this, we are all made of the same stuff. Remember, we of the jungle, you of the city, the same substance composes us. I wonder if she understood the significance of that term. The same substance composes us, the tree overhead, the stone beneath us, the bird, the beast, the star. We are all one, all moving to the same end. Remember that when you no longer remember me, my child. 
Now, she was a good writer. There's, you know, it's, it's compelling literature when you're reading it. But her concept of God was just a spoonful of heresy. You need to be careful if your kids are reading this. Right? It's not, and unfortunately, it's not just children's storybooks where we find this kind of language. Ligonier has been conducting a survey, I'm not sure how long it goes back, but they've been conducting a survey of Americans and evangelicals every two years. You can look it up, it's, it's called the State of Theology. And I just want to pull two, two of the uh, statistics from their 2020 survey that are discouraging. The first one is this, 52%, 52% of Americans agree that Jesus was a great teacher. Remember what we started with, Lewis's trilemma? 52% would, would agree that Jesus was just a great teacher, but was not God. And that's the, the phrase that is used specifically. Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Guess how many evangelicals agreed with that statement? 30%. 30% don't have a proper understanding of Christology. 42% of evangelicals agreed that God accepts the worship of, of all religions. Once again, that's, that's pathetic. I mean, 42%, nearly half, would say there's no difference between us and the mosque and the synagogue. We're all, we're all worshiping the same God. If you want to be challenged further, I would encourage you to consider reading James Dolezal's All That Is In God for some examples even of modern theologians who unwittingly teach what is beyond the bounds of the classical doctrine of God. And this, this is important. And I, and I know we've trudged through some heavy stuff this morning, but there's a reason for that because it's worth wrestling with these things. It grounds your faith. It grounds your relationship with the triune God. Right, so although I've been making an argument for the, the doctrine and relevance of each one of these clauses as we've been working through it, you've probably noticed that the author is not doing that. The author is just making these statements and moving on. Right, there's, an, there's an assumption that his audience will both understand and assent to these claims. As the statements compound, they do provide this robust and compelling picture of the divinity of the Son. And so the author is, is seeking to build us up in our faith by teaching us how to know an incomprehensible God, an invisible God. So on the one hand, no matter how precisely we navigate this Trinitarian theology, we're never going to fully grasp, grasp God in our finite minds. And we should maintain that mystery here. Um, so oftentimes people get, get creative, right? Let's, let's come up with an analogy or an illustration. You find them everywhere, and it's usually a heresy that's presented. There's something unique about our God, and we need to preserve that uniqueness. And I'll try to bring it down uh, and simplify it so much that it, 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 is, uh, it is not accurately portraying what his word says about himself. But what we are capable of understanding, we must comprehend of God through his son. That's, that's what the author is saying here. 
that he is the exact imprint of God's nature, which means that we must know the Son rightly if we want to know God. 1 John 5.20 says something similar, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So it's not just the author of Hebrews teaching this. John teaches is there in 1 John. He says something similar in Paul, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Speaking of those who reject the Son. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Similar language to what we found here. So again, it's worth wrestling with this mystery and even crying out for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to receive this truth, to understand it. I'll close with this quote from Linsky, which summarizes the passage beautifully. He says this, Our poor human tongue and mind, which are occupied so much with the things that are beneath us. I mean, just we fill our minds with things that are insignificant. Things that are earthly. But because we fill our minds so much with that, we have to strain to rise to the heights of the divine persons. It stretches our minds. He goes on, but these mighty expressions form the rock bottom of our Christian faith, the essence of the sweet gospel realities. If the Son, in whose person God drew nigh to us, were less than is said here, our faith and our hope would be vain indeed. So let us ask for the Lord's help in understanding these truths and continue to meditate upon them as we make our way through this book. Heavenly Father, we are grateful once again to open your word and to hear from you, Lord, we're, we're grateful for the depth of your word, Lord, that we can be, that we can stretch our minds to comprehend these truths, to understand what is being expressed here in speaking of the Son and how he is the exact imprint of your nature. Lord, we, we must come to you through him and through him alone. Lord, apart from the Son, we cannot know you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear him. We pray that you would be at work each time we open your word and each time we come to you in prayer, Lord. By your Spirit, give us a greater affection for you and for an understanding of who you are as you revealed yourself in your word. As, as difficult as it is to comprehend, Lord, we, we want these truths to, to ground our faith, to, to give us a greater cer certainty and assurance of these things.
Lord, we want to use these truths to confidently proclaim the gospel to those who have not heard it, those who do have a false understanding of you, even within the church, or those who who think this church is no different than any others or any other religion. Lord, we, we cannot open your word and, and read it in such a way that we can come to that conclusion. That, that trusting in Christ is simply optional. Lord, may we face the reality that, that, that Christ, that, that our faith um, lives and falls upon the doctrine of Christ. If he wasn't raised from the dead, if he wasn't who he said he was, then what we are doing here is vain. It's worthless in the end. But Lord, we trust that these things are true. And so confirm these things in our, in our hearts. And as we share these things, Lord, may, may you do that work that only you can do. Open the eyes of the blind. Reveal to them a beautiful and glorious picture of the radiance of the glory that is revealed in your Son. And we be, may all of us be compelled to honor him as Lord. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we respond by singing... Fairest Lord Jesus, hymn number 283, Fairest Lord Jesus.